From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Georgia's Marjorie Taylor Greene has pushed for months to have Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas impeached, and she's now gotten her wish. The resolution is adopted. The House passed the impeachment by one vote. Where does it go next? Meanwhile, Democrats won a key special congressional election in New York last night. Let's send a message to our friends running the Congress these days. Stop running around for Trump and start running the country. Democrat Tom Suozzi won the seat held by George Santos, making the Republican majority in the House even more fragile. I'm Tia Mitchell. The state election board has voted against ending no-excuse absentee voting. And Governor Kemp is sending a small contingent of National Guard troops to the Texas border. Political insiders Brian Robinson and Theron Johnson will join us to discuss those stories and more in this episode. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut, joined by my partner and co-host, Tia Mitchell, in Washington. Tia, it's Valentine's Day, so we want to send a happy Valentine's Day out, of course, to uh, everybody listening to the show. But I'm thinking there aren't a lot of—we're going to talk about this in more depth— not a whole lot of Valentines being passed back and forth in the uh, U.S. House after the vote last night to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas, I would guess. Yeah, not a lot of Valentines between Republicans and Democrats. But I think what's what we've been talking about more often is there's not a lot of Valentines between Republicans and Republicans. And <laughs> yes, they were able to keep the vast majority of their coalition together to impeach Mayorkas. But behind closed doors, not everyone is is sure that was the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to talk about that after we uh, introduce everybody on the show. I'm going to send out, take a per- point of personal privilege to send a uh, happy Valentine's out to my wife, Janice Schaefer. I love it. 30 years. Every day is Valentine's Day <laughs> in our uh, family. Theron Johnson, who is uh, one of the top Democratic insiders in Georgia, in the South, um, has worked with um, many candidates up and down the ticket, uh, Democrats, including uh, being very involved in Barack Obama's campaigns for uh, president. Theron, um, we're really glad that you could be with us today. Any any Valentine's uh, wishes you want to send out? 
Absolutely, Bill. Um, I'm going to follow your lead and start with my beautiful and phenomenal wife, Dr. China Johnson. want to wish her a happy Valentine's Day. And my mother uh, in Athens, <laughs> uh, Martha Nunley, and, and my mother-in-law, Hilda Hilton. So I uh, definitely want to make sure I wish all the ladies, and including you two, Tia, a happy Valentine's Day. Theron, I want to give you a little piece of history. I was reading an article in the New York Times this morning about the history of kissing. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it turns out that kissing probably began somewhere around 2400 BC and basically cropped up in locations all across the civilized world. Didn't start in any one place and then spread. So Theron, if you give your uh, wife a Valentine kiss, you are a piece of a large history that dates back many millennia. <laughs> We're expecting. Well, I, I definitely did that last night and this morning. <laughs> so I definitely, um, that'd be a part of history. Um, we have been trying to get a hold of Brian Robinson. We've been having some technical difficulties, but Brian, I understand you are now joining us by phone. Brian Robinson, yes. longtime political insider for, with Republicans, uh, was a major part of Nathan Deal's administration and uh, has worked with candidates up and down the ticket in Republican races. Brian, happy Valentine's Day to you. Well, thank you. That's the first Valentine's Day uh, greetings I've gotten today because I have a we're focused on getting a seven year old out the door in the morning. <laughs> well, we're glad you could be here. And we really are glad that we were able to, to steal Theron and Brian away from Lisa Rayum just for today. Because, of course, they do a great show, Political Breakfast, with uh, Lisa every week on WABE. Yes, we always like to give a shout out to our WABE brethren and sistren. So, but we appreciate <laughs> when you guys join us on Politically Georgia. So let's get started, Tia. Um, let's talk about the, uh, in, the impeachment vote on Mayorkas. You wrote a piece uh, in the aftermath of it that people can find uh, in today's AJC. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how this second attempt finally succeeded for Republicans in the House. So um, the the short answer is Steve Scalise is back and he was absent last week. Democrats were able to make sure they didn't have absences last week. And with three Republicans willing to vote against impeaching Mayorkas, that was enough to tie it up. Um, this week, those same three Republicans still opposed impeaching Mayorkas, but Scalise was back. So that was the tie-breaking vote. We should note there were a couple more absences um, on Tuesday, but two on each side, which... Um, still allowed it to be kind of Scalise as the tiebreaker. One of the Democrats who was absent is isolating with COVID. So, you know, when you have a body of over 400 people, it's hard to corral them into one place. So it was kind of miraculous that Democrats were able to tie up that vote last week mm -hmm. um, and take it and really get all their people there, including we talked about Texas Representative Al Green, who literally flew back to Washington after surgery that same day. Um, but they weren't able to do that this um, Tuesday night. We should also, well, we'll get to the New York uh, special election later in the show, but had that person, you know, been sworn in, it 
they couldn't have impeached Mayorkas. So there was all Republicans knew they had a tight window to try again, given that special election contest. Yeah, we're going to talk about the Tom Swasey uh, victory on Long Island in a minute. But Tia, we should also point out uh, this has been Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, uh, quest, her passion for a very long time, sponsor of this measure. Um, she finally got it over the finish line. Yeah, and I think that for for all of the Republicans, this was once they lost in kind of embarrassing fashion last week, I think it was important for all of them to have a win. But I think for Marjorie Taylor Greene, it was beyond beyond that. This is something she's been pushing for. She's been out front. Remember she had that fight a little bit with Rich McCormick over whose impeachment resolution was going to get to go to the floor and all these fights. So for her to be able to say, I accomplished it, number one, it's big for her as someone who, you know, has taken the lead on kind of using the aspect of immigration that's part of the conservative culture wars. But beyond that, I think it is indicative of of her influence as a leading voice among the right wing arm of the Republican Party that's really taken over the Republican Party as a leading voice in Congress that is a proxy for former President Trump as well. Um, Brian, every member of the Georgia delegation, Republican member of the Georgia delegation voted for this impeachment. Every Democrat voted against it. Um, There are many people out there on both sides of the aisle, three Republicans who voted against it, who say that this is um, ill-advised, that it is um, an impeachment that is has set no it's not based on anything real in terms of impeachable offenses. Brian, is this a victory for House Republicans or are they courting trouble with this vote? I think this is getting us further down the line of using impeachment as a tool of politics. And it's important whenever we talk about that to remember that Republicans warned when they went after Trump on the Russia collusion that this was coming. Uh, There was not enough there to impeach a sitting president. It did put into the minds of voters, particularly Trump's deepest supporters, that they were going to try to overturn an election through impeachment. It was ill-advised to do it then, and I would be hard-pressed to justify saying that the charges against Mayorkas rise to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, That should be a really high bar to get over, but this is just where we are now. This is, as much as anything, a response to the tone set by Democrats when they were in the majority. Remember what they did to Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is the mastermind behind this impeachment? They removed her from her committees because of things that she had said before she was in Congress and apologized for on the floor of the House. So what we have in the House is a broken system. I'm not going to justify what they're doing um, with this vote, but it is a product of a system that was put in place by the Democrats. Theron? 
Well, the the thing that my good friend Brian just talked about, uh, Bill, is that, look, that is the times that we're living in, um, that this was a retaliatory attempt uh, by led by the congresswoman from Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene, to do exactly what Brian just said. And that is that when the Democrats were in power, um, they legitimately removed her because of the things that she did, the things that she said, the actions in which she took. But, you know, I have to just repeat what President Joe Biden said about this. And, and I just want to quote him. He said, history will not look kindly on House Republicans for their blatant act of unconstitutional partisanship that's ha- that has targeted an honorable public servant in order to play petty political games. And, and, and to me, if you look at the vote and you look at the tone and the failed attempt before, this is this is about partisan politics. And this is just a perfect example of modern of the modern Republican Party. It's not the Republican Party we once knew, uh, but they have come together to pass a single. They haven't come together to pass any meaningful legislation that's going to help better the lives of Amer- the American people. Instead, they are grandstanding. They are permitting obstruction, you know, the, the things that are obstructive like this, this, this uh, impeachment. And, you know, this just remind our listeners, Bill, what the constitutional calls for an impeachment is treason, is bribery and other high crimes and misdemeanors, as Brian just talked about. Nothing that Secretary Marcus is, is being accused of has or hasn't risen to that level um, to be to basically be impeached. But ultimately, um, what the Republicans are doing are weaponizing this tool, this constitutional opportunity to weaponize impeachment to basically attack Democrats. Tia, um, the Senate is we don't know this for a fact. But there are many people who think the Senate is going to let this lie, that they have no interest in really following up on this. Um, I'm not even sure there are many Republicans uh, in the Senate. We'll watch how that unfolds. But here's what you quote Marjorie Taylor Greene as saying about that. I would advise them, the Senate, to get well-versed in the laws that he, Mayorkas, broke and understand that the people that voted them into office and the oath of office they took, swearing an oath to the American people and to our country, is that oath needs to be remembered and they need to take this very seriously. Tia? So I think to both Theron and especially to um, Brian's point, even how Republicans, particularly Marjorie Taylor Greene, are talking about the impeachment. They're not talking about it as far as the seriousness of the charges. They are coming at it from a political posture. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene yesterday after the vote, when she was talking to journalists, knowing that it's not clear that the Senate is even going to take this to trial. Um, and she's making a political argument that they should talking about polling and how, you know, the base of Republican voters is worried about immigration at the southern border and kind of quietly indicating that there may be political ramifications if Republicans in the Senate don't move forward with an impeachment trial. Now, just to give some context Generally speaking, what happens now is the impeachment articles go to the Senate. And like we saw with Trump's two impeachments, there will be a trial where the impeachment managers from the House serve as prosecutors, so to speak. And the senators are essentially judge and jury. And but because Democrats control the Senate, we know the impeachment vote to remove is likely not to pass, especially as you've noted, 
a lot of Republicans don't even think the high crimes and misdemeanors threshold has been met. So the question is, will the senators move forward with the trial that a lot of them think is a waste of time because you cannot do anything else while an impeachment trial is going on? They can't take a break and vote to confirm judges. They can't take a break, for example, and work on appropriations. Mind you, there's a government shutdown deadline, March 1. So there's it's a lot of senators say, let's let's get let's let's, you know, dispose of this quickly. They may take some procedural maneuvers to go ahead and table it or send it to a committee or something like that. We don't know yet, but those are the possibilities. Brian, before we move on, I want to go back to the question that I asked you, um, because I, I heard you talk about how you think Democrats set the table for this in their impeachments of Donald Trump. By the way, um, just to, cl- to correct the record, that first impeachment of Trump was not based on anything having to do with Russian collusion. It was a result of uh, an investigation into whether uh, Trump uh, was withholding uh, of funding uh, and military support for Ukraine uh, it, it, in exchange for them giving him uh, information about uh, corruption on the part of, of then uh, uh, Vice President Joe Biden in terms of dealings with Ukraine. But but here's my real question, uh, I think, Brian. In the long run, how are voters going to look at this impeachment, the first actual impeachment of a cabinet officer? The only other time it happened was in the 19th century, and the cabinet member who was going to be impeached resigned before the vote actually took place, even though they went ahead with the vote. So, Brian, how is this going to play into the election cycle of 2024? I I don't think it will, because this has become so common. This isn't something that grabs the attention of American voters. It's something that we've become to expect as part of partisan warfare. Uh, So, you know, I think Margaret Taylor Greene is going to be able to take a victory lap. I I do think from her perspective, it does show the juice that she has in the House, that the the former speaker and the new speaker listen to her when she talks. And when she demands something, it's going to get a hearing. So that's one of my takeaways on on a micro level. But on the macro level, is this going to move the needle on the issue in the country? No, it's not. Uh, The question is, uh, Democrats have taken on a lot of water over the immigration issue. Polling is very clear. Americans blame Democrats for the crisis that we are facing because Joe Biden and other Democrats were reckless in their rhetoric when he first took office, basically saying walls are immoral, and it was sending a come-one-come-all message, and it was heard. So Democrats have a political problem. My question moving forward, and I think this is the more pertinent one as far as this issue and the election, is do voters tune in enough to blame Trump for saying don't pass that bill? Don't don't give the Democrats a victory in an election year. Wait till the election and then we'll we'll do it. Do voters put a penalty on Republicans for that? And Bill, I wish I had a crystal ball on that one and could tell you. Because I think it would guide the Republicans' hand on what they're going to do. If they thought it was going to hurt them, I think they would go ahead and get something passed. Uh, But that, to me, is going to be the big issue of this election year. This No one knows who Mayorkas is unless you listen to, like, really conservative media. You don't know his name. 
So I just can't believe that it's going to make a difference. Theron? Look, I, I, I think Brian makes a good point about how the American people, unfortunately, have been so desensitized to uh, really, honestly, the Constitution and protecting democracy. Um, you know, this this blame game that all oh, the Democrats did it. So now the Republicans are doing it. It makes it right. No, it's wrong. And to your point, Bill. Uh, the first impeachment of the former president was about a a factual, documented, um, detailed report about him basically trying to get something in return to funding for Ukraine. And we still are talking about Ukraine. But but really quickly on the, on the border situation, look, Brian and I do a really good job of looking at polling. I've said and other Democrats have said that the border crisis is a real crisis. It's an issue. But what Brian is failing to remind our listeners here is that. President Biden has come out and said, look, I want to fix the border. And we have a bipartisan piece of legislation that had moved through the the, the, the necessary chambers in the House. Um, it, it had bipartisan support. A lot of Republicans were, were on board with it. But President, former President Donald Trump called people and told them not to vote for it, not to do it. And so it makes me realize, and here's the better question, is do Republicans really want to fix the crisis at the borders? And I believe they don't. But I believe what they're trying to do is listen to a former president who is dictating to them and probably, you know, threatening them with political consequences that if they do their job and sign on to a bill that's that's given a lot of concessions to what Republicans want, it fully funds the Border Patrol, gives them the union that they need to fully be able to put up safe and sustainable protocols to make sure that people can come to this country legally. And we don't see those horrific videos that we see on television. This is this is this just as much the Republicans to blame as you can blame President Biden. So so just correct the record. President Biden has evolved. He's gotten better on the border crisis. He said, I want to fix it if Congress will act. I believe that he's done everything he can do up until this point to try to get legislation passed to deal with this crisis. And so I think that this is going to come back to hunt former President Donald Trump in his election. And Republicans are going to be partly to blame of why we still have this crisis going on at the border right now. All right, let's do this. We're going to talk more about the border in in several different contexts, in, in headlines, in political news right now. But why don't we get our first break of the show out of the way and come back with Tia Mitchell, Theron Johnson, and Brian Robinson. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut, along with Tia Mitchell in Washington, Democrat Theron Johnson, and Republican Brian Robinson. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from the AJC Politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com newsletters. Tia, let's turn to another sort of border, um, immigration, border security issue-related story in the news. 
Democrat Tom Swazi last night won the uh, third congressional district race in Long Island. That's the seat that was vacated by George Santos. It was thrown out of the House. And what the reason I say there is, it was in many ways related to the border, is that Swazi, as a Democrat who had served previously and it was coming back now, Swazi had a very, very nuanced message about the border. He, in fact, criticized to some extent the way President Biden had handled immigration issues, felt that there needed to be fixes that Republicans and Democrats should work on uh, together. And, and so he, he didn't run a campaign based on condemning Republicans for refusing to vote for that border security measure Theron talked about. He never really he didn't want President Biden to campaign on his behalf. So he ran a very interesting campaign, and it might be a roadmap for how some other Democrats can run in congressional races on the same ticket with Joe Biden in the fall. Yeah, and I think that immigration is interesting as an issue now, particularly in New York City, where you have Mayor Adams complaining about the federal government not doing enough to stop the influx of migrants far away from the border, but it's a real issue in New York and therefore it does feel like a local issue. I do think, you know, there's been all this talk about how much we can read into this special election in New York. Um, And there are so many factors that in at, first of all, at the end of the day, congressional races are more local than sometimes we give them credit for, even as politics more and more is becoming more nationalized. But also we have to remember that there was a George Santos factor, like when a lawmaker is disgraced out of office, usually that benefits the party of the opposition, no matter what the circumstances are. So if George Santos had been a Democrat who was accused of scandal, it would have made it easier for a Republican to succeed him. Um, But, you know, we can't, again, we can't ignore immigration. We can't ignore that Long Island where this seat is based is kind of more conservative pocket in the New York City area than other places uh, around New York City, other suburbs of New York City. So it is an interesting case study. Although I think, Theron, that uh, Swazi outperformed uh, President Biden, who won that district um, by some, I can't remember what the number of points were, but Swazi won it by like eight points over his Republican opponent. But I was struck by the fact that you said something important, I think, Theron, in the last segment. You acknowledged that the Biden administration has to own up to some of its failures in terms of uh, securing the border. It can't all be just about how Republicans are now using it as a political issue. Yeah, Bill, that's my sensible approach. And and B-Rob has heard me talk about this. Listen, I want to win. And Democrats want to reelect President Joe Biden. So to get into this argument and blame game, I mean, there's enough blame to go around to blame the Republicans for not doing enough. But when I I use the term evolved, what I mean is that I think President Biden is leading in this country with his heart. And he understands that the soul of America is on the line and we must protect democracy and not not totally, you know, going away from his core principles, which he truly believes. But at the end of the day, 
the American people elected President Joe Biden because of his leadership, because of his integrity uh, and because of his ability to get things done. And whether you like it or not, I mean, we can talk all day about uh, the economy and how many people uh, thought that we were heading towards a recession. I mean, we can go on and on and on. But let's get back to this this race, uh, Bill. And I think this is an absolute good sign for Democrats in the fall. And you mentioned that, you know, many people will question, have we really gotten a lot done this year with a Republican led uh, Congress? And I think a lot of people feel that the Republicans are struggling with their ability to govern uh, and swing voters. I don't care what you say. And Brian looks at the polling and Tia, you do as well, Bill. Moderate, independent swing voters still care about competency. Right. Can you really get things done? But. As we look forward to this victory and him outperforming President Biden in the district, uh, as Tia mentioned, look, we we Congressman Santos was just a complete mess. Uh, and so, you know, you had to come in there and be competent and run a very long island specific type of campaign uh, to win that seat. But the other thing that he talked about, Bill, you talked about this, is that he talked about the huge wins that Democrats have had about, again, talking about inflation, not being scared to talk about it, the economy, manufacturing and jobs in that area and in that region. And so I just still believe that most voters still want a government that isn't completely frozen and broken because um, most Republican legislators are terrified with upsetting their Trump fuel base. And so Democrats have a great opportunity here to, again, appeal to the American people that we want to put people in Congress that want to get things done for them. Brian, um, uh, Tia already referred to it, but we know that special elections are uh, elections run under very specific circumstances, often big snow uh, yesterday on Long Island, at which, by the way, um, seems to have uh, helped uh, Swazi because Democrats voted early, as they often do, whereas Republicans still feel they've got to push their voters to the polls on Election Day. And because of the snow, it's possible that other Republicans did not turn out to uh, cast ballots in this race. But you're welcome to pick up on the question of, of how immigration played into this race. But I do want to add one element, and that's that Swazi also ran very specifically as a pro-choice Democrat. And we know that that's going to be an issue that we'll, uh, we'll see followed through throughout all of 2024, Brian. Yeah, that's right. And I think I, I yesterday moderated a panel for the American Association of Political Consultants, and I, I asked the panel about this race before we knew the outcome. And, and they were like discounting the impact of it as far as a predictor because of the snowstorm and because of what you're talking about, Bill. Uh, Democrats have done a better job of banking votes early and doing absentees than Republicans have. That's something that Republicans have gotten worse about since 2020, this idea that early voting somehow isn't good. We, we need to fix that. We need to get our voters to the polls whenever they can get to the polls, and we need to have a strategy built around that. Uh, I think part of what keeps us from being overly nationalized is you look at what the party committees, the NRCC, the D, the DTRIP, uh, the, the committees that help congressional candidates for both sides, they didn't really engage in this race, and I don't really know what's behind that, but they didn't seem to be too worried about it setting a national narrative here. One thing that the new congressman did was adopt some of the Republican messaging on immigration. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he didn't deny that it was a crisis. He was calling for a solution. He was calling for 
the nation to take steps to stop the flow into the country. And I don't know that there are going to be a lot of Democrats around the country, and some certainly will. Barron is right. Joe Biden has changed his tune, but it's because he was facing a 20-point deficit on the issue with American voters. He had to. It, it is a pragmatic uh, reversal there. Uh, how many Democrats are going to be willing to stand up to their base and have tough-on-immigration rhetoric? I don't, I don't know. It worked in Long Island, particularly uh, in a community where they are seeing the brunt of the crisis with all of those migrants and asylum seekers sent there to New York City. Now we're seeing a crime wave allegedly caused by the migrants who are there. So you have a city on edge, and you had a Democrat candidate who was willing to speak to those anxieties in a real law and order type way. That's something that Democrats will learn from and Republicans need to learn from, too, that, you know, Democrats aren't going to let us have the issue just to ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I I just wonder how Republicans. When I think about how Republicans are framing immigration, which is we need to do something about the border, I feel like they've ceded some moral high ground to Democrats when they refuse to even entertain the bipartisan border security measure that was negotiated in the Senate. It was negotiated by Senator Langford of Oklahoma, who's pretty conservative. This wasn't Mitt Romney, who Republicans don't trust or respect. There was a conservative in the room. There was a, a Democrat in the room. And then there was Kirsten Cinema, who, quite frankly, Democrats don't even trust, and she represented the independents. <laughs> so they put their heads together, came out with a proposal, and again, Republicans not just said, "Well, I mean, in the House they said it's a non-starter; we'll vote against it," but in the in the Senate, not only did they say it's a non-starter, they filibustered even debate, discussion, the amendment process. And I think the, the the nitty-gritty of legislative maneuvering, most people don't get into. But I think most people do understand the messaging. Republicans are saying they want to do something about border security, but then said they would reject a bipartisan border security bill. I think people understand that. And I think that doesn't do well for Republicans as they try to make border security a campaign issue. So, Theron, I, I want to you're the Democrat on the panel today, and, and I want to ask you um, about the border security issue in terms of the Biden reelection campaign. Um, as you well know, uh, you know, in, in a similar way that he is caught in the middle on Israel and uh, and, and the Palestinians, there's there's a way in which he's caught a little bit in the middle in terms of his stand on border security with progressive Democrats in uh, in Congress, but I also wonder. I, I don't. I, I don't know if the Hispanic. You'll tell me the answer to this, or Brian will. I don't know how the Hispanic community in Georgia. Let's bring it home. Is going to feel as they approach the November election um, about Biden's toughening up border uh, security to prevent more people from crossing into the United States. I don't know the answer to that. I'm not even sure it's a particularly relevant question, but it does seem to me it poses something of a challenge 
to the, the to the president in terms of a cohort that he typically thinks will vote for him. It, it, Bill, you know, leadership is hard. And when you're the president of the United States of America, um, the, the people want you to get things done. And I want to be very clear. Um, you know, my good friend B. Rob said it was a reversal. I, don't, I didn't go that far. And what Biden is sort of saying now, I, I, I use the term evolve. But 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 let's let's talk about what you just asked. And let me be very clear. I don't speak for the Latino Hispanic community in Georgia. I have a lot of friends and colleagues who are there. But what I've sort of heard from a few of them is another element of this bill that you guys have talked about on Politically Georgia is that you have people who come to this country, the United States of America, and then they're sent back. Right. They're saying, nope, you you, know, you can't live here anymore illegally. And they go back to their countries and the process of them trying to reenter can take any way of average to two to four years. And so so when, when we look at this from its, so it's a full scope and it's in its totality, there are people who are literally coming to this country for a better way of life. And they are trying to escape their post-COVID-19 countries because it's, it's, it's bad. I mean, the conditions are horrific and troubling. Now, what I have heard from one leader in the Hispanic community is, and I, and I actually wrote about this in the Georgia Trend. It's going to be coming out in, in, in my monthly column, and Brian has a monthly column as well. Not, they understand that not all people are coming to this country with good intentions. There are some bad people coming to this country with evil intentions. There are people who are criminals who are coming to this country to basically um, bring violence and to bring weapons and, and gang. I mean, there, there is a small, small portion of them. And so that's the only thing that I've heard is that they believe that the majority of people who seek asylum, who come to this country, who wants to reenter, um, they have great intentions because they want to be a part of the workforce. They just want to provide for their families. But what, where to Tia's point, which was excellent, is the double standard, the hypocrisy of the Republican Party, because when they say border security, all you see is those horrific videos of you know people just flooding. And then now, as we talked about, um, these undocumented uh, immigrants are being shipped to other you know cities. That's what we see. But Democrats have got to basically bring this home and make it a humanitarian issue, uh, make it an issue about the quality of life and who we really are as Americans. But at the same time, put in a process that gives the moderate and some Republicans the assurance that we're doing everything we can to keep the bad guys out. Yeah, the because same. there is there are some people that believe that there are people coming in here legally to do bad things. I apologize for interrupting you, Theron. At the same time, Brian, uh, Hispanics in Georgia, uh, I, I can't help but wonder what they think when they hear uh, the former president, Donald Trump, talk about the mass uh, uh, eviction of uh, immigrants from the United States when he's president again. But the original question you're breaking up. We've got a real problem with your audio right yeah. now, Brian. I, I, what do we... can, can you hear me now? Yes. Uh, you know, the, the Latino voters in the state, and they're about 4% of Georgia's electorate, they are American citizens. They're not going to be deported. I think it's a incorrect assumption to think that immigration is the top issue for Latino voters. Uh, they're very concerned about the economy. There, Brian, we're having real problems with uh, your audio, and we do not want to lose your voice for the rest of the show. So let's get to a break right now, our last break in the show. Try to make sure we've got a stable phone 
connection with you. And when we come back, uh, we got a lot more to talk about. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This podcast is part of the mission of the AJC to be the most essential and engaging source of news for the people of Atlanta, Georgia, and the South. Stay up to date every day on breaking news, in-depth investigations, politics, sports, entertainment, food and dining, and so much more. Just become a subscriber to the AJC. You can do that by going to AJC.com slash start for a special offer. You'll unlock hundreds of original articles published daily at AJC.com and have access to the new AJC mobile app. That's AJC.com slash start. Tia Mitchell, let's talk. There are all these kind of headlines that deal with immigration right now. It's just a week in which there's a lot going on there, um, the last couple weeks, actually. And another thing that's happened to you is that Governor Kemp announced yesterday he is sending um, a couple dozen uh, Georgia National Guard troops uh, to the Texas border um, as part of Governor Abbott's effort to secure a portion of the border where he has excluded federal border patrol agents from operating. That, by the way, is a constitutional question that probably is going to continue to go through uh, the courts. But in the meantime, Governor Kemp is supporting Governor Abbott um, and taking making his statement as part of this political effort by Republicans to paint the border as in chaos with Biden to blame. Yeah, I think, I mean, Governor Kemp in this way is joining with other conservative governors in other states who are backing Texas Governor Greg Abbott in kind of his, A, backing him in his fight with the federal government over the border, but also kind of backing him in highlighting the crisis at the border by sending National Guard members and talking about how they need help and they're stepping in because they perceive the federal government as not doing enough. Quite frankly, some of this is, I don't want to call it theater. I think that's too editorializing, but part of this is part of the effort, the messaging, I'll say, from conservatives to justify the Mayorkas impeachment and some of their criticism of the Biden administration. So in a tangible, visible way, they're saying, look, the Biden administration, Secretary Mayorkas is they're They're not doing their jobs. They're they're failing the people to the point that other states have to step in. And that's what we're seeing. Again, to me, this keeps going back to the fact that Governor Kemp, and we'll see in 2026 or 2028 if this is a winning message. I think Glenn Youngkin has empowered people like Governor Kemp to try it. The question is, can conservative policies 
and anti-Trumpism reside within the same person where they can win nationally. I think Governor Kemp is setting himself up to try it. I don't know. You know, recent history has shown us that at the end of the day, the anti-Trumpism starts to outweigh the other things. But we'll see. He's clearly setting himself up to try it. Brian? Yeah, if I could go back to the original question, Bill, where I got cut up, cut off, you know, immigration isn't necessarily a top issue for Latino Georgians. They're four percent of the Georgia electorate and they're American citizens. So they're not trying to get back and forth across the border and having trouble doing it because they have a passport. Right. So you know, they're going to be concerned about the same thing that any other American is going to be concerned about the, the economy, abortion. Uh, yes, the crisis at the border. It, it may not impact them in some monolithic way. Many of them want to see border controls. They want to stop to the chaos that is down there. So I don't think that Latinos have one view on that. And in fact, what we've seen in recent years is Latinos who used to be overwhelmingly Democratic beginning to migrate toward Republicans. You know, Republicans have picked up seats in the U.S. House in Latino districts in recent cycles. And so you may see a continuation of that here. The Latino vote in Georgia is not huge at this juncture, but it's growing. We have a lot more of them here than we have legal voters because maybe their children are citizens, and when they turn 18, they'll become voters then. It's going to be a big and important electorate, part of our electorate, in, in years to come, but you have to talk to them about a lot more than immigration because that's it's wrong to think that's all they care about. I, I think that's a very, very uh, fair point, uh, Brian. Uh, let me, Theron, in terms of Governor Kemp sending uh, state National Guard uh, to the border, um, by the way, we should point out, Theron, that while it is true that Hispanic voters across the country in the last election cycle began to show that they were very willing to support Republicans, I think I'm correct that when you look at the breakdown in Georgia, uh, Hispanic voters tended to continue to be uh, strong supporters of Democratic candidates. But what about Brian Kemp sending troops to the border? Well, but, but that's a great question. And so to kind of piggyback on what Brian was saying, and, and I think I indicated that when I talked about it, again, I, I was very clear. I don't speak for the Hispanic and Latino community. And, and he's right. I mean, they care about jobs. They care about education. They care a lot about public safety uh, and, and entrepreneurship. I mean, this, this is a key voting block, uh, Bill, as you mentioned, for Democrats, not just in Georgia, but all over the country. I mean, if you look at where Democrats have made the most strides, it's been in the South. It's been in the Midwest and it's been in the West. And, you know, we've been able to maintain our sort of uh, power within the Northeast. And so the Hispanic and Latino community, they play a pivotal role in that. And I think our policies and our coalitions and being with them, not just when it's election year and just for symbolic moments to really show them like we have been there fighting for DACA. Uh, We've been there making sure that we appoint and promote Latinos into office and to make sure that they're in cabinet positions. And so now let's go to what Governor Kemp is doing. And I think Tia did a spectacular job. And Bill, you set this up perfectly. Let's not forget, this is a governor who has always been talking about illegal immigration and the border security. I mean, this is a governor who ran for governor back in 2018 and surprised a lot of us, Bill. You covered this. uh, And Tia, you did as well. That went way right 
on the issue around illegal immigration in the state of Georgia. I mean, let's not forget, this is the same governor who said that he was going to get in his pickup truck and go around Georgia and round up illegals. And so now the timing of it is what we're sort of talking about. And is and I think that he feels, as Tia mentioned, that as he continues to support something that he, I think, genuinely cares about and sending troops to Texas with a governor who he has a good relationship with, helps him continue to basically strengthen his relationships and his partisan politics within his party. Um, but I do think that, as Tia also mentioned, is that, you know, do, do the Republicans really want to do something about the immigration challenge that we're having in this country? And if so, if they wanted to do it, I posed a question, would Governor Kemp's time be spent more effectively going to Congress and convincing those House members and those Senate members to basically sign on to this bipartisan bill that can alleviate some of the concerns that he had and could be a, a, a long-term step towards a systemic solution dealing with the border crisis. So I, I would think that Democrats will really ask these governors you know, to not only just join at the border and send our, our resources, but why are more Republicans encouraging Republican legislators and Republican members of Congress in the Senate to sign on to this bill that's right there that can actually be effective immediately with a lot of the solutions that we need. All right. Thank you. Uh, we had a lot of lot of subjects that really all related, a lot of topics that related to uh, border issues, and I appreciate the conversation about that. T.I., I want to move on. The state election board uh, had before it a question of whether or not they would send to the legislature a recommendation to end no-excuse absentee balloting. And we certainly know that there are, are Republicans, particularly election deniers, who believe that absentee balloting uh, led to the so-called rigged election of 2020 in, was one of the things that they questioned about the legitimacy of the 2020 election. And the election board voted against making that recommendation, including the chair, who's brand new, who many people, I think, as observers thought was a very pro-Trump uh, political figure who uh, might very well vote as a sort of a MAGA Republican. He didn't. In this case, no excuse voting is going to uh, continue unless the legislature puts an end to it, which it doesn't look like they're going to do. So quickly, number one, to bring this full circle back to our immigration conversation, the correlation is, once again, Republicans wanted no excuse absentee ballot. And now, because the political tides are turned, because of Donald Trump mainly, now some of them don't want it. Um, but when I saw the state election board oppose the resolution, to me, it it. And Brian, I know we're running out of time, but to me, I wondered, I bet Kemp and the establishment behind the scenes was letting those conservatives on the board know, listen, OK, we know what Donald Trump is saying, but you get rid of um, Noah's Hughes absentee voting. Our coalition really can't win in Georgia. We don't want this. Forget what we say publicly. We don't want this. That's a great point, Brian. You know, uh Republicans still have a, an advantage with Georgia seniors. If you're over 65, there's a, a good chance you're going to vote Republican if you go to the polls or get an absentee ballot. And we also know seniors are the most likely to need an absentee ballot because maybe getting to the polls is too difficult. And Republicans need to 
invest in getting those seniors to vote by absentee if they can't get to the polls, not throw up hurdles to it. For their own interests, they need to be in favor of these absent, uh, no excuse absentee ballots. And in Georgia, one thing that has been consistent is, except for during COVID, the number of absentee ballots has, has stayed fairly low. Yes, it has kicked up some since COVID. I think some voter patterns changed there. But we're still an in-person state. We're built to be an in-person state. The system runs better if that's how we all do it. And unless there's some massive uptick in absentee ballot voting, I think we're fine with the system that we have now. If it does surge in the future, we probably do need to change our infrastructure a little bit because we're not built for an absentee ballot voting system. Uh, Those are some of the pragmatic and practical concerns that we need to look at as we move forward. But for now, we do not have a massive number of no excuse absentee ballots. Theron, just we got about time for your 30 second response. What, of course, what the legislature did do was establish stricter rules for people to apply to vote absentee, which uh, some Democrats particularly think uh, was a uh, an effort to suppress the absentee balloting. Listen, we have countless controls in, against voter fraud in the state of Georgia. You know, our democracy is strongest when we make voting as accessible as possible. And no excuse absentee voting gives hundreds of thousands of people the flexibility they need to participate in our democracy. And then lastly, Bill, when did Democrats start winning again in Georgia? It was when we figured out how to early vote, turn out on Election Day. But the game changed for Senator Warnock, for Senator Alsop, reelecting Lucy Metbath right. and, and upset is when we start taking advantage of utilizing absentee voting. Process. Thank you, Theron Johnson, Brian Robinson. Tia, you know how much I love doing the show with you. Um, we've got to get out of here tomorrow. A huge day in Fulton County Court when Judge Scott Matthew will look at whether or not Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade should be dismissed from the uh RICO conspiracy uh, election case. We'll be covering all that and a lot more. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. Or of course, you can continue following us on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please just leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years and I am still amazed at how rich the city's black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. 
It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh,